Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, we could title this Faith and Our Future. And I want to begin in Matthew 24. Don't turn to James 5 yet. Begin with me in Matthew 24. I want to read from verse 27 down through verse 44. James is going to talk about the return of Jesus. And he's going to borrow a lot from what Jesus says in this unforgettable text. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 27. And don't miss the first four words of the reading. They'll grab you right at the get-go. Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. And just to note, when we turn to James 5, James is going to illustrate the return of Jesus with a plant growing in the ground, just like this. I'm sure that Jesus borrowed, that James rather borrowed from Jesus. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eaten and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the days when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Well, the sermon's going to be from James 5, but if you would just permit me to pull two phrases from Matthew 24. And actually, it's the first phrase we read and one of the last phrases we read. The two that I want to pull out is verse 27, as the lightning comes. And then almost the last phrase that we read in verse 44, you also must be ready. Of everything we could say about the return of Jesus, let us simply say this. It will be spectacular and shocking like lightning, like a thunderclap when you don't expect it from the silence of the sky. The return of Christ will be spectacular, sudden, and shocking. 
And let us simply summarize also that the return of Christ will be sooner than you think. That's the point of the end where he says, if, if you knew when the thief was coming, you would have been awake. Therefore, you must be ready. It'll be sooner than you think. You'll be surprised at how quickly it comes. Jesus giving us this original teaching, I think James cribs off of it in James chapter five, and you could turn there if you're ready. James five, verses seven and eight. Somebody calculated that there are 300 verses about the return of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So if you put the ratio there, it would be one verse out of about every 12 from Matthew to Revelation is on this theme of the return of Jesus Christ, which is simply to indicate to us this is not a small subcategory of a subcategory that's only mentioned in the last paragraph of the Bible. This is sprinkled every other page of the Bible, this great theme of the return of Jesus Christ. James comes to this in his closing paragraphs of his epistle when he says, beginning in verse seven, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, his hands on the doorknob, about to turn it. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you would pay attention to the text with me, you'll see that patience or being patient is repeated four times. Twice in verse 7, be patient, brothers. Be patient like the farmer is patient for the fruit. And then patient again in verse 8. You also be patient. And then again in verse 10. The example of suffering and patience of the prophets and of Job. And the second thing, if you notice it three times, the word establish and the, the double indication of the word steadfast, which basically mean the same thing. Verse 8, establish your heart. And then verse 11, the steadfastness and the steadfastness of Job. And notice the until language. Be patient, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits until the rains come. Be patient until. Be patient until. This is a big part of our Christian life. God says to us, be patient until. God even says to you, keep fighting sin until. And you may think the easy way out is to say, keep fighting sin until you go ahead and give in to sin. But that's not the until that God has in mind. God says to us, keep fighting sin until, but he tells us, you're not going to have to fight sin forever. Keep fighting sin until Jesus returns and you are delivered from this body of death. There's an until. God doesn't say that life down here is easy, but God says that life down here and the hardness of it has an until. 
The biblical doctrine of eschatology is that God has an until. And the way things are now is not the way that things will always be. This morning, I want to treat verses 7 and 8 of James 5. Next week, Lord willing, uh, I'll be gone. I asked uh, Darren to give a sermon on uh, uh, marriage and family matters uh, next Sunday because, Lord willing, next Sunday I will be uh, a week from today. My our precious son-in-law, who is a son to us, is graduating from the Master's Seminary on May 9th. And so we will get to be there uh, to, to take part in his graduation. It's just uh, sometimes life just, the whole wheel revolves around, you know? I, I graduated from that stage with that same robe in, in 1996. And now our precious son-in-law is graduating, Lord willing, this a week from today. And then when I get back, the week after that, we'll take verses 9 and 10 and 11. But our outline today is, uh, is, is just comes, it, the outline's basically a sentence that takes three key phrases from the text. It takes the phrase, the coming of the Lord, and then it takes the phrase, patiently, and it takes the phrase, establish our hearts. And here's our outline, essentially the sermon in a sentence. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon. Therefore, we patiently wait with faith and we establish our hearts with hope. We patiently wait with faith and we establish our hearts with hope. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon. Therefore, we patiently wait with faith and we establish our hearts with hope. Three times the return of the Lord is mentioned. Verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. The word for return is the most common word that's used for the return of Jesus in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard it if you've studied end times. It's the word parousia. It's translated return or coming, the coming of the Lord or the return of the Lord. I'm, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that crazy about the translation, the coming of the Lord. I, I think maybe a better translation would be arrival and subsequent presence. In other words, it's not just that he came through the door and now he's standing there. This is a big word, more like the return of a king, the arrival of a king, and everything that will radiate differently now that the king has arrived. That's the word. In verse 8, says that his coming, his parousia, is at hand, meaning that it is imminent, meaning that it is near meaning that it could happen at any time. If the coming of the Lord was not imminent, if the coming of the Lord was not at hand, what that would mean is the Bible gives us, oh, about 48 different signs that have to happen, and we can put a box next to all of those signs, and then we can check those boxes, and we know it's not going to be at hand, and it's not going to be imminent until we check all those boxes. What this text is saying is, them box been checked. It's imminent. It could happen at any time. Like the lightning, spectacular and sudden. Like the coming of the thief when you didn't expect it, but sooner than you expected it. Essentially, what James says here is what Jesus says to his disciples is what Paul says in his epistles, which is that we are in the last days. When Jesus told his disciples that they were in the last days, when James told his original hearers that first read this letter that they were in the last days, 
The funny thing is, that wasn't uh, like last Thursday. That was 2,000 years ago. And yet today, in this church, in this moment, I'm telling you, we're in the last days. All these days later, so we scratch our head and say, well, were they wrong? Are we wrong? How does that whole thing work? How is it that James felt, well, not just felt, that he knew and he taught from Scripture that we are in the last days? And how is it that I, in this, in this preaching event, can not just feel but declare with the certainty of God's word that you're in the last days, and I'm, I'm not wrong, and James wasn't wrong, but there's a, this, this gap of so many years that we count them in millennia, not just in centuries. That was precisely the question that, sec- that Peter tried to answer, and if you want to turn to Peter, it's the very next book after James. That was precisely the question that Peter attempted to answer in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 10 is the third text that we'll turn to after Matthew 24 and James 5. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just like James cribbed from Jesus in Matthew 24, so exactly Peter does. I hear the thunder and the lightning in verse 10 with the heavenly bodies being burned up and Jesus' illustration of the house master who would have stayed awake if he knew the thief was coming. Peter calls the coming of the Lord like a thief in the night in verse 10. Same point exactly. But the issue is that there were some who asked the question, well, where is the promise of his coming? And even scoffed about it. Like, how could Jesus have been right? And then James have been right. And then a preacher today saying the same thing is still right, even though we've gone all these years. Perhaps the best way to explain it isn't with a, like a Webster's dictionary explanation. You know, one of the things that's priceless about the great writings of uh, C.S. Lewis is that you almost never find like a, a Webster's dictionary definition in his writing. But the elucidation and the clarity and the specificity with which he, quote unquote, defines things by not defining them, but by showing them in the narrative. You know, I hope you read to your kids. I read it to my kids more times than I could count. Uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. And he has this profound way of showing this exact issue, how time scales differently 
in two different spheres of the same world. Because the four kids, you remember their names? Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. They're in the English countryside and they go through this wardrobe. And once they're through that wardrobe, these four kids, it says at the end, the, the, at the end of their adventures in Narnia, uh, Peter and Edmund have these long gray beards. They live a lifetime there. They grow up, they fight battles, they become kings, they rule over, and queens, and they rule over kingdoms. An entire lifetime of experiences. And then when they go through the forest, the lamppost, and enter back through the wardrobe, it's the same cricket chirping evening in the English countryside that it was when they left, and they're seven and eight years old again. Time is scaled differently in different spheres of God's world. Watch. God doesn't have like two worlds, one that we're in and one that he's in. This whole thing is our father's world. But time is scaled differently in these two different spheres of it, the way we experience it here and the way it actually is. And the biblical doctrine of eschatology is that a day is coming when... God will choose not to scale time differently in those two spheres anymore, but they will merge. That's the parousia. That's the eschaton. And so now, time is going differently in these two spheres. And we can imagine how great it will be when God coalesces the spheres, when he, so to speak, puts the wardrobe in the wood chipper and the, and the, the that they merge. And so we wonder, why is God waiting so long? And that's what the scoffers were saying in 2 Peter. Why, why is God waiting so long? And the answer is in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3. God is not slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason God is waiting, and as pastor in this congregation, I say to you with this much specificity, the reason God is waiting is because he is waiting for us to make and train and baptize more disciples of Jesus because more have to repent. And we need to reach them. The church needs to embrace its mission. Our mission is not this or that or the other thing. It is to make disciples of Jesus and beg all men and women and boys and girls everywhere to repent and follow Jesus. That's why he's waiting. And so from 2 Peter, let's go back to James 5. James is saying, the coming of the Lord is certain and soon. We patiently wait with faith and we establish our hearts with hope. And when James tells us to wait patiently, he immediately gives an illustration. Be patient, he says, like the farmer. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon, but we have to wait patiently. If anybody is a decent teacher, they know how to illustrate. The purpose of an illustration in teaching is maybe more than this, but let's just say it's twofold. The purpose of an illustration is to clarify something that's confusing. The purpose of an illustration is to clarify something that's confusing. But the second purpose, if you just let me sum it down to two, of a good illustration, the second purpose is to, uh, 
convince of something that's doubtful or difficult. And I think that's what James is doing here. In other words, James is going to tell us to be patient, question, and be honest. God is watching you right now, so be honest. Is being patient, if I said being patient, what is that? Easy or difficult? Difficult. It's difficult. And so some well-meaning teacher says, you need to be more patient. And your response is, well, yeah, but it's too hard. It's difficult. And so a a well-placed illustration gets through your grumbly, yeah, but I can't do it. Because if with an illustration, I can show you how somebody just like you, maybe even a little worse than you or the same as you or a little better than you, but not that much better than you, how they did it, then you can see how you can. And that's what he's doing here with patience. Man, we need illustrations like this. Mike, you know, we, I've, we've yacked together before about how legendary my home improvement skills are. <laughs> my, my, you laugh. You guys are not very loving congregation. My, uh, so my project yesterday was a mouse decided he wanted to move into our house, so he chewed through the screen of our basement window to try to get in. Now, I'm not saying he did that yesterday. He did that like 11 months ago, but I've been waiting to replace the screen because I don't know how to replace the screen. A deacon of our church, I understand, could replace a screen in three minutes. The pastor of our church can replace a screen with three trips to Home Depot and three hours. But when I, got, when I got this screen repair kit, I'm just telling you, when I got this screen repair kit, I don't, I don't use my iPhone a lot. I, I, don't, I don't really use it for this, but it had that little, that black and white with all the dots on it, and you hold your phone up to it. And then all of a sudden, these cartoon figures were taking out the old screen and putting in the new one. I was like, that's how I could do it. And I just followed this illustration. Let, let your soul, which forgets the return of Jesus and which is impatient and grumbling about every other thing, let your soul follow this illustration. The illustration of the farmer. He says that the fruit of the earth, well, verse seven, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. The fruit of the earth earth is precious. It's valuable. And the value of the harvest justifies, first, the hard work, and second, the hard waiting for the harvest. The harvest is valuable. And the value of the harvest justifies, first, the hard work, and second, the hard waiting the hard waiting of patience. He waits for the early and latter rains. In Israel, the early rains were in the planting season, October and November. The latter rains were in the harvest season, April. They say that three-fifths or even four-fifths of the rain in Israel falls between December and April. So the the very, very beginning, end of November, and the very, very end of that period is the early and latter rains. What does a farmer do? Sometimes a... Sometimes... An illustration is so simple that we pass it by. And there's almost no illustration more often used in the Bible than the farmer. And what a farmer does is very simple. And sometimes in the simplicity of it, we miss it. One of my favorite uh, modern contemporary novelists is the novelist Wendell Berry. And he's a farmer. And he writes novels in which 
this is not a very good commercial. He writes novels in which nothing really happens. But the, the way he describes this farming community is just, I just, it, there's so much wisdom in the way they interact and the way they talk, even though nothing spectacular and dramatic happens. What does a farmer do? If you permit me, he does two things. He follows the laws of creation and then he waits for them to work. That's what a farmer does. First, he follows the laws of creation. If we took down these walls and looked out that window, there is a, there is a farming field right out there. The first thing the farmer does is that he follows the laws of creation. That is, the farmer who is going to plant his seed in that field, what he does not do is bring that seed in here and drop it on that carpet. He also doesn't take that seed and climb up a tree and put it in a bird's nest because he knows that the law that God has put into the sphere of this creation is that seeds go in the ground. So first thing he does is he follows the law of creation. But the second thing he does is he waits. He waits. This is, this, this is the simplicity of the farming illustration. Let's just say a farmer is not trying to impress everyone with his or her innovation. A farmer is not trying to impress the laws of the universe by how he can speed them up and change things. He plants the seed and then he waits for it to grow. You ever hear this? You don't have to turn there. It's just three sentences. This simple little parable in Mark 4. Jesus tells this little parable about a farmer waiting for a seed to grow. Mark 4, verse 26 through 28. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man would scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he himself does not know how. The earth produces by itself. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle and the, pharmacist, and the harvest has come. The farmer follows the laws of creation and then he waits for them to work. You ever hear a sermon and it was 18 years ago, but you remember the seat that you were sitting in and you remember the points that were made because in the lean seasons of your life, the words of that sermon have been like, a, like an oxygen to you. That's that text in Mark 4. I, don't, I had been pastor in this church for two or three years, and I went, to a, I went to a pastor's conference, and John MacArthur gave a sermon on that text. The title of the sermon was The, the Theology of Sleep and the Work of the Pastor. And I have drawn on that sermon so many times because Pastor MacArthur said the, the role of the pastor is to follow the commands of God and deliver the counsel of God. But he cannot, the pastor that is, cannot make the seed grow. All he can do is go to sleep and wait. You do what you can do. But woe to you if you try to control what you cannot control. You do what you can do, but the results are not up to you. This is, I don't do a ton of biblical counseling. I do a little of it, but in the little biblical counseling that I do, so often the struggle is the person to whom I'm talking is insisting 
on controlling what God has said will never be under their control. You do what God, you do what God has called you to do. You do what you are responsible to do, but you have to quit grasping for control of the things that God hasn't placed under your control. That's what the farmer does. He or she follows the laws of creation and then they wait for what's out of their control. Well, we could say a lot about what it means to wait on the Lord. Permit me to just say one thing before we move to our second point about waiting on the Lord, and that's this. Perhaps you've heard this before. The only thing worse than waiting on the Lord is wishing that you had. I have pastored enough precious people who have quit waiting on the Lord and they just need help dealing with the devastation that that has caused. The only thing worse than waiting on the Lord is wishing that you had. I acknowledge, and the scripture acknowledges, waiting on the Lord is not easy. It is hard to wait on the Lord. It is hard to wait on the Lord. It's just that the consequences of not waiting on the Lord are harder than the consequences of waiting on the Lord. So wait on the Lord. We wait with faith. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon. Therefore, we wait patiently with faith. And here's, here's where our illustration from the farmer is elevated actually out of our experience. Because the farmer, in a, in a way the farmer waits with faith, but in a way he waits with sight. Because that farmer, let's say, I don't know, pick a random number, let's say he's 51 years old. How many years has that farmer seen the latter and the early rains? Maybe he, maybe he can't remember seeing them when he was one or two, but he remembers seeing them when he was three or four, and he remembers the, that his mom whooped him because he, he brought that, that muddy water into the house. And every year, he has seen those latter and early rains. And so he's waiting for something the, that he has seen. Church, how often have you seen the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You're waiting by faith. You're not waiting by sight. The parousia is, is the event that happens at the end. And we haven't seen it yet. We've seen his first coming through the foundation of the apostolic writings, but we have not seen his second coming. And so we wait, we have to wait for it, not by sight, but by faith. The coming of the Lord is certain and soon. Therefore, we wait patiently with faith. And then quickly to our second point, we establish our hearts with hope. And this is verse eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That word that the ESV translates establish, I like that translation. That's a good translation. You could translate it strengthen. You will actually recognize the Greek word if I say it out loud to you. The Greek word is sterizo. Establish, strengthen, inject fortitude into your hearts. That's what he's saying. Most memorable use of this word sterizo is in Luke 9, 51. You heard this verse? It's about Jesus. Oh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I kind of don't like the ESV translation there. It's kind of flat. He set his face. I prefer the old KJV. He set 
his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Steel in his eyes, in his gaze, he said, that's where I'm going and nothing is stopping me from getting there. He set his face like flint to go. An established heart is a firmly fixed heart. An established heart is a heart that is anchored in the attributes of God. An established heart is a heart that is rooted in the righteousness of the kingdom of God. An established heart is a heart that is all in on all of the promises of God. An established heart is a heart that is fixed on one thing. You remember Psalm 27, verse 4? One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and that I may gaze on this beauty in his temple. The heart that's steadfast is the heart that's fixed on one thing. The great Charles Spurgeon, commenting on that one thing in Psalm 27, verse 4, he said, All great lives have been under the constraint of one mastering principle. Then he says this, I think quite pithily. He says, a man who is everything by turns and nothing for long is a nobody. He flits around the surface of life and leaves no more trace than a bird flying across the sky. But a man, or we could add a woman, but a man or a woman becomes great when he or she is concentrated on one thing. Establish your hearts on the coming of the Lord being at hand. Church, that's it. The return of Jesus Christ. That's what James is getting at. He's saying, establish your hearts. Put some solid iron into your soul. Become stout-hearted. Cultivate an, an inner fortitude and a character of courage that will not fade away. Question, how is this done? How do we establish our hearts? How do we cultivate this inner fortitude? The answer is right there. The answer is, how do, how do we establish our hearts? This is the answer. You establish your heart by expecting Jesus. That's how you do it. You establish your heart by expecting Jesus soon. You establish your heart by expecting the return of Jesus soon. That's it. The brighter my vision on the return of Christ, the bigger my heart in remaining faithful to Christ. The nearer my expectation of Christ's soon return, the deeper my strengthening of the establishing of my heart in Christ. An unestablished heart is a heart that forgets Jesus. An unestablished heart is a heart that doubts the promise of his coming. And if there was... You know, I don't know, if somebody asked me, what's the main thing that you're afraid would, would knock your church over? I'm not sure how I'd answer that. If you ask James, what's the main fear that you have for the people to whom you're preaching? This is it. Because he started in on it right away in chapter one when he said, when he said, if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind and you must not suppose you'll receive anything from the Lord because you're a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. In the Greek, di sukos, two-souled, two-minded, double-minded, like a wave, you're unreliable like a wave. James would have said, the main fear that I have for my people who are listening to me is that they'll be double-minded. 
That's why he says in James 4 and verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is our danger that we won't have a fixed heart. We'll have an unreliable heart if we're half in the world and half in the kingdom of God. If half of our hope is that my administration will get everything that I want done down here and half of our hope is in the kingdom of God. That's the double-mindedness. The double-mindedness that evaporates in the imminence of Christ's return. A steadfast heart is not easily distracted by other offers. A faithful husband is never distracted by an offer from another woman. A faithful heart is not easily distracted by other offers. And a fixed soul, this is going to be important, I believe, in the days ahead. A fixed soul does not quickly give up when the days are dark and the difficulty is hard. A fixed soul, to put the ultimate illustration on it, an established heart does not yield when the final question is, just stop confessing Jesus and you can stay alive. The established heart confesses Jesus, says, take my life. It wasn't mine anyway. Brothers and sisters, would we establish our hearts if we would then brothers and sisters, the one thing you have to know is this, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you establish our hearts Lord Jesus, we confess, left to ourselves, oh, we'd be double-minded. We'd be fickle like the wave of the sea. But Lord Jesus, here, through prayers that are even, that are even helped by the presence of your spirit, you might answer these prayers so that our hearts would be fixed upon you and upon your soon return. Lord Jesus, strengthen and establish the hearts of your people that you might be glorified in this church as we follow you firm-heartedly and as we make and train disciples that men and women, boys and girls, may come to know you and be ready for your return. Jesus, help us. We pray in your name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.